You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. It's Friday, so of course it's time for the Weekly Rep. And this week I'm speaking to independent financial advisor, economist and market commentator. And that's Liston Mainchies from Liston at Liston.co.za. On Friday, I thought maybe Monday wouldn't be as good as it should be, Liston, because it got sort of got that feeling that the Dow Jones was a little bit jittery. Uh, on Monday, Monday was horrible, a thousand point fall on the Dow. Tuesday was a dead cat bounce and it was budget in, induced in South Africa anyway, and also a little bit of stability overseas. But uh, after our budget was finished, then the Dow Jones went down again. Wednesday was horrible, Thursday was horrible, Friday started off horribly and is now recovering a bit with the S&P only down around about half a percent. But whatever it is, I was enthralled by at the beginning, and now I'm starting to get worried by it. How do you look at this? Yeah, well, I think we discussed this uh, at least once before. You know, coronavirus is one of those things, or sorry, this coronavirus, it's a new virus. Yes. It's similar to the old uh, respiratory uh, syndrome, SARS, uh, in that it is actually a form of pneumonia and or influenza, one, one way or another, but it's just very bad. The other one, the SARS, had a much higher death rate for people who got infected, but not many got infected. This one, for whatever reason, and it may be because it's more easily transmissible, but it may also be that it was allowed to get out of hand first. Now, of course, it's got a, a period, and as most of these epidemics do, um, in any area when virtually everybody has been exposed to it and either not got it or got it and recovered. As I said, the death rate out, well, particularly in China, the death rate is pretty low at about uh, 3%. When you go to places like Iran, it's, we don't know the numbers for sure, but given the numbers, uh, their death rate for those that uh, have, have announced cases of is, is much higher. But of course, it's spread, you know, to, to Italy. And they've got lockdown cities. Now, all I can say is, Lindsay, I don't ever, genuinely ever remember this happening outside of Africa. When we had Ebola, uh, you know, everybody was panic-stricken and there were incredible, you know, uh, uh, rules and regulations of people traveling and cities uh, pretty well locked down. But now you've got a situation in Europe where you've got freedom to cross any border and you may say to the people of the town, please don't go anywhere. But you get somebody who was in Italy, but he actually lives in Spain, returning to Spain. And I, I'm sorry to say, but I just think, you know, they, they did let it get, up, get too far. And we now have high profile people, you know, infected. But I, again, I come back and I say, well, a whole lot may have been in, in, infected. Not that many died. But the biggest story, and that's the one infecting the markets, is that suddenly we can't get cars from uh, Korea because they've closed the factory. Yes. But they closed the factory not only because they were worried about the workers, but because a lot of the parts came from elsewhere and they were not coming because they were in lockdown. So I genuinely say, Lindsay, I don't think in all the years that I've seen anything quite like this. And we know how epidemics play. And as I said, you know, they have a, a finite lifetime. Obviously, one of the first things that, that people try to do is to find something that will improve the situation, either a vaccination or some uh, a flu syrup or whatever. And they've tried that and with moderate success. 
The other point about it that I think is important for people to realize if they're really worried about their own health is that it really truly attacks the vulnerable. And I'm not surprised that a number of elderly people in China and mostly men have died. There's a very big smoking contingent in China. Yes. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if anybody does a correlation between those dying and those who have been heavy smokers uh, that they don't find there's quite a, quite a strong one. Yes. Because obviously, as I said, it's pneumonia and it's lungs. Talking so, about that, just before you go on, because it's a respiratory ailment, I saw a very good interview with a Chinese doctor. It was, uh, it was done via Skype, I think it was, uh, from one of the major TV networks in the United States. And he was in China in a hospital and he was describing it. And he said, it is a problem. And the problem is that the hospital facilities, no matter it, whether it's in China, in Korea, in Italy, or in the United States of America, does not have the equipment, sufficient machines in order to cope with this. There's the technology, but there isn't the number of machines should this thing spread any further. And that really hit home to me. Well, absolutely. I, I, and that's the, the problem with a, a, a pandemic and a, a, a true epidemic. And we know we get these influenza bouts, you know, uh, year after year. Uh, people tend to know what to do. They do their own self-quarantining. Uh, but when it comes to actual treatment of something as, as bad as what we call pneumonia, um, and which can cause death, then you're absolutely right. You know, there are inadequate facilities and the equipment. Correct. Okay. Now, the market reaction. Oh, the, rather, the market participants' reaction has been because this is what I said to another commentator. I said, Mr. Trump says that 25 to 69,000 people a year die from the flu or influenza in the United States of America. And I said, well, you know that. It's been going on for decades and decades, if not a couple of centuries. Uh, that's absolutely fine. It's not fine, but it's a known known. This is a known unknown now. And that is why market participants are reacting as they are. And also because of the elevated levels of the market, which is the result of policies by the US Federal Reserve uh, and Mr. Trump and Mr. Obama before Mr. Trump. So if the markets were in a sort of a normal condition, which they're not, of course, we know that, then it results of the coronavirus outbreak wouldn't have been so pronounced. That is my pronouncement. Well, definitely. And uh, again, part of it simply comes back to the idea. We were getting used to the idea of a trade war and difficulty of getting bits from uh, people who supplied you in the past. And you didn't know how real it was and how complicated it was and who was getting, getting uh, uh, you know, banned. But now suddenly, through no fault of any politician, any central banker, you have people not delivering on time. Now, remember in the old days when we ran inventories, because we had, you know, problems of delivery, we had uh, all kinds of, of dislocations, and I won't go to the reasons for some of them, but we didn't have this wonderful idea of just in time. You expect your uh, items to arrive the day before you need them, or maybe two days, but not three weeks so, uh, you know, to readjust your uh, machinery for something that isn't coming is not easy. And even if it did come, you wouldn't have enough space for it because, you know, factories nowadays are so much more effective in not having to hold these huge inventories. So I just think it is a total dislocation to a system which was not well prepared for it. Now, that has got to, got to have, you know, implications. It will be over, and we'll all go around and say, I wonder what that was all about. 
But we will be more circumspect in everything. We will say, what other risks are there that we didn't see this risk, we didn't prepare for it, are there others that are going to get to us? I think maybe we'll run it like this, and we won't have a concentration of uh, suppliers of uh, all in one place. You know, we will look for diversification. I mean, that's the standard response. So I just think it, you know, it is truly a dislocation to an, a set of economies and a set of independent economies, and they're going to have to adjust to that. Even when the virus is over, which we, we as I said, I, I have enough faith in medical science yes. and in the, the, the shape and form of, of uh, virus infections to say it will it will go away. And let's be tr- honest as well. Some people must benefit out of this, notably the pharmaceutical companies, especially if the one who comes first to market and says we've got approval yeah. for this one to treat this. And, and you were saying they haven't, don't have enough equipment. It might be as simple as having enough anti, anti dote antibodies vaccine, uh, you know, to to simplify it. So I'm saying, uh, to me, it is unprecedented, if I can say it that way. Just before you go on again, I need to take in what you've just said. You said this is unprecedented. I've never seen anything like this. And we haven't seen a sell-off like this in such a short space of time from high to correction, i.e. more than 10%, since 1928. And there was another commentator this morning who quoted some statistic from 1933. I think in a two-day period in 1933, the Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 13%. But this is an historical week we've just endured, Liston. Absolutely. But two, two factors. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind that Going back to the 1930s, you got the news through a newspaper. Yes. You picked it up. You read it on the train. Uh, you might have been able to get through to your broker the next day. Now it's button press. This thing is immediate. Mm. Your high-frequency traders can spot a trend and, and act on it. Over and above that, you've got the people whose livelihood is based on hedging. And it's wonderful to be a hedge fund operator who can go short the other people, we've got long-only mandates, but a hedge fund operator can go short. He knows there won't be anybody on the other side. He can knock it down and down and down. Now, that will self-correct too over time. But just the whole point is that, and golly, I think after 1987, we, we had circuit breakers, as they called them. I don't know that we've actually had any circuit breakers happen this has just not been that big in one day, but it has been a sequence of five days uh, that we're down, and it is significant uh, for sure. And again, I'm, I, I was talking elsewhere earlier in the month of February, and things were going swimmingly. You know, we were saying how good everything was. And then suddenly, in a few days, we've wiped out the whole of the year's uh, growth and then some. Yeah. So I'm looking at if if the the Dow closes at at around about twenty five four, which are the indications now, it will be down eleven percent year to date. That will be the first time that I've seen eleven percent in you know in the first two months of the year. So again, we, you know, we keep coming back to this, <laughs> but a lot of it is, and I think fair, human reaction. Your point as well. The markets were considered expensive in the first place. Now you have a dislocation. We all head for the exits at the same time. So it will end. It will end. Uh, and and uh, I was talking to other people in the, in the profession uh, just this week, 
And they were saying, isn't this marvellous? Yes. Some of the things we've been wanting to buy lower down are now not only down at our buy levels, they're below our buy levels. Fantastic. Good for them. <laughs> and they'll go even <laughs> lower below their buying levels. And there'll be a couple more legs down because we know what the market does or market participants do. They push things a little bit too far. The other thing I, I was going to say to you before we go on to the small matter of the budget and also a plethora of results that have come out this week from the JSC listed companies is I'm looking forward to your charts this weekend, Liston. And I want to see if you say something like, Full bear on the Dow Jones or the S&P. I mean, you, you must be licking your lips waiting for the close tonight. <laughs> well, I can actually draw them with the assumption that the, the prices now are going to be the ones they close at. But no, you're right. I will do them early tomorrow and I will send them out early. But I doubt they will say full bear. They, you know, we reached a stage where they were um, heading, uh, stopped being uh, well above their moving averages, that some of them had trickled down. So they just reached a stage where I said, no, look, they're bound to carry on down for a while. I didn't anticipate this uh, uh, level. But typically when it goes through like that, it doesn't reach what you and I know when I refer to particularly as a point of resolve and at which the 40-day uh, the 40-week, the 10-week, and the series are at the same point. So this will look on the charts very much as an overshoot and most likely to return to a point of resolve somewhere in the next five to six weeks. That's probably how it will read. Okay, well, I shall look forward to it. The budget, now, that was delivered on Wednesday afternoon. It was a pretty good budget from the market participants' point of view, I think, and from a RAND standpoint and all sorts of other things. But unfortunately, they are not the ones that are going to accept the giant wage bill being reduced. So, I don't know, what did, what did you think? A moment in time and now the real hard work begins or what? Well, I say a different budget, certainly to what I had been led to believe. I was led to believe that he needs money and he will do something, whether it's a VAT increase or tax increases or whatever. I was unbelievably surprised when he said, in fact, I'm only doing uh, moving the brackets up. And that means that somebody on the same salary will be paying less tax this year than last. Mm. I was astounded. Yes. And then... Typically in a budget, and whether it's your own or your company's, you look and say, well, what revenue are we likely to get? What uh, um, expenditure I, either can we do or are we intending to do? And then you explain how you can match the difference. So if revenue exceeds expenditure, that's not a problem. If expenditure exceeds uh, revenue, then somewhere along the line, you have to explain how you're going to get that money. And typically it is, we're going to put you know, more on the fuel levy. We're going to put more on cigarettes and tobacco and, and, and uh, alcohol. Uh, there was so little of that. It, it was amazing. It, you know, it almost sounded like a completely different set of people uh, setting this thing up. And then, as you say, came, came the one that they said. And you and I have known about this for ages, Lindsay. But it does appear to me, and that's why I think it was a good budget, is the realization that civil servants start on a salary, whether that's a teacher, whether that's a policeman or a nurse or whoever, uh, you know, they just graduated from college, they, they've arrived and they are, you know, in the, in the learning stages on the job. And so they get an increase just by, by virtue of time. 
And after a time, they reach the top of that salary scale, and then they probably get a promotion into the next level, and they carry on up up the game. Uh, but what has been happening, as we all know, is that the salary scales have gone up by above inflation. So you get above inflation plus a great increase. And as I said, there was the realization that this has been happening. Now, in the old days, and I'm talking now about the 80s and, and, and 90s, we talked about the government crowding out the private sector. I have not heard those words this century. But obviously, if the government is 42% of uh, the economy uh, and it is uh, battling to uh, sort things out, it's a lot more difficult than if it's 25% of the economy and the other guys can pick up the stack. So I definitely hear that as a, a, a refrain. Never said quite in the way I've just said it. But so now we come and we say we are going to, and this is where you start to say there's an air of disbelief, we are going to cut the uh, uh, civil servants or the, or the government wage bill by 160,000 million. My goodness me, that is a lot of rands. And that's a lot of beer that can be bought. That's a lot of uh, 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 burgers that can be bought. That's a lot of uh, uh, other items, including clothing, that could be bought. That's now not going to be able to be bought. Mm, that's a good point. But it's also true that if you're on the slippery slope, at some point you have to call a halt and say, it's just not working anymore, chaps. And largely, that has been the, 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 the message of this budget. So I regard it as good, not because of the no surprises, not because of um, the, the, the no attack on various areas of the economy, but I'm saying there's a realization, and it's been put to the pub, public, that's us, it's been put to now the unions, and the unions are the ones pushing back. Now, the real surprise is that is actually Tito Mboweni's power base. He was a unionist. <laughs> I'm not sure what they call him now. Tito Mboweni was the Labour minister, wasn't he, in the old days? Yes, he was. Yeah. But, but before that, all before that, in the struggle, he was in Kasatu. Yeah. yeah so then he, he became he... Minister of Labour. Then he became Governor of the Reserve Bank. And now he's Mr. Strict Discipline Finance Minister. It sounds like an amazing change. Yes, and I wonder if people consider him to be a traitor who are in the union movement at the moment. I imagine there must be a few. There are, I would think, enough people who say, but he's talking sense. Yeah. Because it is a very broad, broad group of, of, of people in a particular item, a particular party, who, whose unanimity was really, you know, again the government. I think uh, they're not that cohesive in their now we are government. I don't, except mm. my understanding is that mm. uh, they have a fairly strict set of procedures and the words are, that are used on Lutuli House where they say, but hang on, the party voted for this. This is what we have agreed upon. You as whoever, whether you are the minister of something or the, even, the, even the president, you can't say, well, I don't agree with the party. I'll change it. That's not going to happen. What the party has agreed must be carried out. I think what I'd like to put forward, if Mr Mbouen is listening, is uh, although you, your position as finance minister probably precludes you from the negotiating process, but I think of all the people within the ANC, you should be heading the discussion team, the negotiating team with the unions, because you can come from both sides. 
the minister's side and also the ex-unionist side. Don't you agree? Yeah, well, again, he would be the ideal dealmaker. But as you say, unfortunately, he's, uh, he's the one proposing it from, from his side. I don't think he can, he can do other than fight his corner. But just by the way, Lindsay, and uh, I, I don't think it was last weekend, I think it was a weekend before, we had a, a, a conversation relating to Lamberti land. Yes. And it, you said that you thought it would be a jolly good idea if uh, everybody in the economy were given a certain amount of money and that would stimulate the economy and off we go. Yes. And I don't know whether you you had, had seen it before, but that's exactly what they're planning to do in Hong Kong. I saw that, so yes. it's not unheard of. I did, and it suddenly struck a chord. And I don't know how they're going to administer it and say, look, there's the money, go and do what you like with it. You can go to Disneyland if you want to. But my idea was to uh, almost give vouchers and say, you've got to spend this at South African shops. You've got to spend this on you on utilities. You've got to spend it on essentials. That would be my idea. But anyway. Uh, that's, yeah, that's, that's, but again, the, the numbers that they were proposing were not just small. And I'm not sure whether they were Hong Kong dollars or US dollars, but the number they were talking about was $10,000 each. Yes. Well, I think it's a good idea. I still do. And people who have a go at me and say <laughs> you're a socialist, I say, no, I'm not. It's just doing what the Fed is doing, except giving it into the hands of the people rather than the hands of Wall Street. Listen, let's have a look at all the results that have come out this week. And I, I honestly, I can't remember how many there were because I was uh, so preoccupied with budgets and, and markets falling and viruses and, and things. But there's been some amazing numbers of results, first of all, and some amazing results of the results, if you see what I mean. And yet, Lindsay, my point is you read them and most of them read like you should have read them a year ago. If you said the local economy's got a problem, there's real pressure on the consumer, and you pick up any consumer story, you'll find that it's not good news. Um, various other things will get blamed uh, and uh, whatever. Move to the, the the big one, and I'm calling it the big one. Um, I, I could say Anheuser-Busch, but that's rather not the South African story. But look, let's look at a company like Vassol. Now, three years ago, somebody said to me, what do you think about Sassol? And they were 430 at the time. And I said, no. I said, they're building a massive plant in America. Number one. Uh, a new plant anywhere is a, is a problem because you don't know, will there be people taking your, your product when you uh, uh, bring it on stream? Secondly, what price will you be getting? Because you'll be producing alongside other people producing it, and you have every chance of re reducing the price of what it is you produce. So I said, that's got nothing to do with Sassol. That's just a business decision about a very large capital-intensive plant. Now, one assumes and has to believe that they had done all the right market research and they had worked out that there would definitely be enough of everything to do it. And, well, we'll spend eight and a half thousand million dollars doing it. Golly, did I just give you a big number that should have frightened you? Yes. And then we had overruns. Oh, dear. And it's now cost about 14,000 million dollars. But it's okay. We've borrowed the money, you see. We, we didn't really use our own money to build this thing. Um, okay. Well, now we've reached production stage. Nice. One of the problems with new plants, and particularly, you know, where there's a, a degree of 
call it flow, as in a chemical processing plant, um, often there's high pressure. What do I hear? And the LDPE, which I understand stands for low density uh, 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 polyethylene, yes. uh, unfortunately, one of the pipe supports broke. So the pipe fell off. So a whole <laughs> lot of stuff gushed out. Okay, so let me let you, should, you, should speak to their, <laughs> you should speak to their PR company and just say, listen, next time, so we can understand it, just say, that the pipe fell off and stuff gushed out, and that's that's what I that's that's what I want to hear on a stock exchange news service announcement. I don't need all this LDP crap. Well, so the story is that a lead time to get a new pipe is six months. Now I don't know about the piping you've got in your house and home, but I would be very upset if my plumber said to me, "I can't fix it for six months." Sorry, Governor, but six months lead time, isn't that it? As, that, that, so that's not pretty. So how they're dealing with it, and that's all in the in the report anyway. But my major point that I'm making is that almost true to form. A, it came in above budget. It came in late, and B, they had commissioning problems. Right now we've got to sell the stuff. But there's a little catch, and this was the one I mentioned three years ago when I was talking about it. I said, you have to understand that when you're building something of that size, the accounting allows you to capitalize the interest as you pay. In other words, it's just a cost of building it. But once you are in production, you're obliged to bring it into your accounts in the income statement. And it is fairly large, as you would guess. It doesn't have to be a big number, like it may be as little as 4% a year on $14,000 million. I wouldn't like to pay that interest bill. I mean, that's sizable. So you have statements of when they will reach, uh, you know, cash flow positivity, operational cash flow positivity. Now, operational doesn't build that interest in, of course. So... You're arguing, well, it doesn't really matter. We, we knew it would take, you know, two, three years to come into full production. And, you know, with the U.S. growing at the rate that it's growing, you know, really, truly, the big money was going to be made in the year 2024. But now the brilliance of these mathematical models and spreadsheets is that you can discount the future cash flow back. And you see it. It's all pretty. But nobody looks for what I would call this J-curve, where you're out the money and you're not getting the revenues because the pipe fell off or because you haven't got the, the, the takers and or because uh, coming on stream as you do and adding more supply, the price is not there. So all I can say is I'm laughing. Sorry. No, don't laugh. I mean, it's a nervous laugh, I know, because this thing is it went on the opening today at 163 rand a share. I couldn't believe it. There's also another factor, another factor, another hand in the game that has been influential, not just in the last few days, not just in the last few weeks or months, but the last couple of years, and that is the ESG component of the investment equation because people do not want to invest in companies like Sassel because of their terrible, terrible uh, relative track record uh, compared to other companies. They're polluters. It's as simple as that. Well, that's true. And, and it's not just that. Uh, you know, it's, it's just uh, nonstop more regulation. And unfortunately, every company has to have long reports that have to be vetted, they have to be checked, and indeed, and I think good for society. But unfortunately, people haven't realized that, as you say, when you get people striking, uh, you know, at the gates of your factory because they don't like 
your ESG component, um, life is not what it used to be. So, again, part of that is only becoming obvious, I I would say, and and as you're pointing out now, when suddenly there's a glitch in the system anyway. Now you get the double down. But, yeah, the the story is not all lost, by the way. (laughs) Mm. And I, 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 I went to the Northern presentation today. I've been going for a couple of years. And there is a company, and you can say it was by good luck, although I would put it down to good management, because they did, in the pit of the bad times for, for Platinums, they saw adjoining Platinum mines and others in an area where they were, and they said, we can get these for a bargain basement price. And yes, they had to go to the market and they had to uh, you know, fund the purchases. Uh, but some of that is coming back rather well for them. So that's sign of good management, good financial management. And you can turn around and say, but they're not actually paying a dividend yet. (laughs) But again, you have to listen to the story and see what they are doing with the money. And they're saying, well, what we're doing with the money is actually better than paying out a dividend. And it is still value for the shareholders. Uh, But they did also get incredibly lucky. If you are looking at what we call the Platinum Group Metals Price, and that's a combination and let's say it's something between 55 and 60 for platinum, something between 30 and 35 for palladium, and then about 8-odd percent for rhodium, and then there's a whole lot of small ones that also ran. In RAND, that is at a level you cannot believe relative to last year, let alone the year before. So somebody who was making losses last year is making beautiful profits this year. And as long as those platinum prices don't fall out of bed, courtesy of coronavirus or whatever, uh, they look to be having an even bigger uh, payout or uh, earnings next year. Now, you know, that's part of our training, and it's it's what I say to, to new analysts. I say, we are looking for companies that are going to grow their earnings. Find me those ones. And sometimes the growth is simply that they were so bad last year and they wrote everything down and there was fraud, don't you know? And, uh, you know, they, they what we call kitchen sink it. So the earnings are right down. And then the next year they come back up. That's not what I call earnings growth. That's just getting back to where you were. <clears throat> One of the ways that people have been able to grow, in, particularly in South Africa, has been to open new stores. If you opened a new store, you get more more foot traffic, you get more mm. revenue. And as long as you're able to maintain margin, you will grow. But you are growing by store expansion. And obviously, there are limits to that as well. And then comes the patch where the consumer says, I can't go to either of your new stores, by the way. <laughs> I'm trading down. I'm having to go to one closer to Well, this you. is no – listen, because we're running out of time, I, 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 this leads nicely into the last two analyses that you're going to uh, give us uh, and you've got about four minutes and that is ShopRite and MassMart. Uh, somebody phoned me on the morning of the release of the ShopRite results and said look at these results and they're really good. I looked at them and said I'm sorry I must have uh, last year's or something because I can't see that they're very good at all. They look pedestrian to me. They've done a good deal with Equitas when it comes to distribution centres and that's 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 great because that's forward thinking but the numbers themselves are terrible. The share price was up 12% ended down on the day. So occasionally I get things right, and this was one of those yeah, occasions. Well, I thought ShopRite's results were pedestrianly pedestrian. Well, again, I, I think you know there's a little bit of, of, of spin in the whole thing, but 
correctly, as you say, what, what did we do in revenue line? And it was not great. And then suddenly, and correctly, they suddenly have more cash in the balance sheet than they have had for ages. And how did that come about? Well, the answer is they sold some of their buildings. Now, it's quite cute that they sold, the, put the buildings into a joint venture where the joint venture partner and they borrowed to buy their own buildings. Now, I can tell you what, you can't get a tax deduction if you do that on, on your own building. <laughs> you go to the bank and say, can I borrow to buy my own building? They, they'll laugh at you. You already own it. But if you sell it to somebody else, uh, then suddenly uh, you get some money. So it is a nice bit of financial work. Um, I'm, I'm not saying it's anything other than, than, than cute. Um, it has positives and negatives, and we'll have to look and see what kind of leases were arranged between the, the relevant parties of the, of the joint venture. But remember, it now the building technically is controlled by the 51% shareholder, which, which is Equitas. Okay, and Massimalt as well, the other, the other consumption side <laughs> company that I, I've been looking at, and also maybe even Woolworths. I don't know, listen, just have a look at the retail no, sector in general. No, well, I, I think it looks pretty, no, pretty grim, it, actually. It, no, I thought it was very good journalism when they said, game over. Yeah. <laughs> ah, there we go, that's not bad, yeah. That's, that's a, not bad. Yeah. Um, but the point as well, Massmart, uh, Walmart, having, having bought this, I think they came in when the rand was seven to the dollar, they're now looking at 15-odd to the dollar. I think they came in at, at, at uh, 18, and it's now 106. So they've lost online in rands and massively in dollars. So correctly, what they've done is to send a new guy out. And I think his instruction is make it work or close it down or sell it. The, the point being, it hasn't been a good investment for us. Mm. All right, so let's sum all this up. It's been a torrid week. Uh, it could end positively. There could be a massive technical key reversal today after the, the plunge around about mid-morning, late-morning South African time on the S&P 500 futures. They've recovered quite nicely. Maybe we'll end the week up and all the technical analysts will say, well, that was that. The, ex the sellers are now exhausted. Or we could just do what we've done in the last few days, and that is continue the horrible, horrible action. Volatile, uh, but essentially down on the day. What is your prognosis, Liston Mainchies? Okay. Fridays, and it's not working too well in our market, but uh, particularly when you're a hedge fund operator or a short seller of, uh, of size, you don't know what's going to happen over the weekend. Uh, none of us do. And it may just be that, you know, one of the pharmaceutical companies says, we've found the cure and it's easy and it's cheap and we'll, we can make billions of them, you know, before next Friday. Right. You don't know what's going to come over the weekend. So it is traditional. And if you have compliance uh, on your back, they look and they say, what size risk are we taking? And we don't want to have it any bigger than this over the weekend. Don't mind if you do it on Wednesday, you've got Thursday, Friday to fix it. So there is typically, if you've had a down week, there is typically uh, a, what we call a hockey stick, <laughs> a, a little tick up at the end. And so to me, the, what happens today is still probably not the most important. It wouldn't surprise me at all to see it up a little bit. And it won't make up anything like the losses that we've seen the last five days. The real test will come next week. When everybody's read their weekend paper, they've had a look at it, they've put it into their computer, and they suddenly find that they've lost $20 million 
uh, out of their uh, $170 million. And they say, what? I can't have lost that much in in, in, in five days. Mm-hmm. I'll phone my broker in the morning. <laughs> yes, if he's still alive. Mm-hmm. So, so, sorry, I do I do like to believe that the market participants are human. Well, yeah, some of them aren't actually because they're machines. But anyway, listen, since we've been speaking, the S&P has gone from being down at one stage only 7 points now to being down 25 points, from being down 0.4% to now being down 0.9%. It's all over the place. It's fascinating stuff. It's good for broadcasting. It's terrible for investors. It's great for day traders. They must be exhausted. It's been fascinating talking to you. You can contact Liston Mainchies, Liston at liston.co.za. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position or opinion of any other agency, organisation, employer or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.